Peter chapter 1. Last week we considered verses 13 through to 17. And of course verse 17 is really part of the next passage. It's part of the the passage that goes from 17 to 21, which we're going to consider today. But I wanted to throw verse 17 in last week because it concerned the fear of God and living our lives in the fear of God, which certainly matches the call to holiness and obedience that we find uh, in verses 13 down. But now we need to connect verse 17 to uh, the sentence that it belongs in, which is uh, down to verse 21. So let me just read this passage to us. Peter says, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, (coughs) but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So I've named this sermon Faith in the Facts, because what Peter wants us to understand here is that our our faith, our hope, our goals for the future and our reason for serving those goals are not based upon made-up stories. They're not anchored in myths. They are based solidly and concretely in the most solid ground that there is. That is the historical facts that surround the coming into the world of Jesus Christ and his death on our behalf for our sins and then his glorious resurrection. And in that resurrection, all of our hopes are hid. In that defeat of death and that opening up of a new and transformed and glorious life, all of our expectations lie. And that expectation, that faith that we have, is connected to facts, connected to facts. You see, Christianity at its core is a historical faith. It's based in what has happened, what has occurred in this world. Just as much as your appearance in this world and your living in this world is a historical fact, and if Christ doesn't come, your death in this world and people looking back at you 
is a fact that can't be changed, can't be altered. So the coming into this world and the living in this world and the death in this world of the Son of God is a fact. It has happened. You can't erase it. You can try to uh, pretend that it didn't happen. You can try and explain it away in different ways so that the truth of it and its importance and what it means is uh, eradicated, which would be a very foolish thing to do. But what you can't do is you can't erase the fact that he came. You can't take away from the truth that Jesus Christ has lived and he has taught and he has died in this world. Yes, it was a long time ago, but it doesn't matter how long ago it was. The fact is it happened. The fact that it was a long time ago is actually a cause for celebration because it means that many people have embraced the message that he came to deliver. His mission to save sinful humanity. And he has saved millions and millions and millions of sinful human beings. And he has saved us if indeed we trust in the truth of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, because we believe that, Peter argues from it. Because Jesus has come, because he has died for your sins, because he has been raised to defeat life, that means, to defeat, sorry, death, means that death can be defeated by us in him. And if death has been defeated, that means the only thing that's open to us is life. And the quality of that life is described by the word glory. As I've said many times before, and I don't tire of repeating it, that glory is a weighty word. It actually has the, in the connotation of weight in the Greek language. What makes glory so weighty? Well, how about joy that is undimmed and does not change and does not vanish away? How about no more worries? or anxiety. There's no shrinks in heaven. How about no more bodily pains? No more going to see a doctor. No more hospitals. No more taking your temperature. No more Tylenol. How about peace? Peace that enters into you fully and can be felt without. So that where you go is always a place of shalom, always a place of peace. Never a place that you have to look over your shoulder. No police are needed in the kingdom. 
just yesterday there was some alert at, in Redwood Valley about um, a person who involved in a, an armed robbery who uh, the police were trying to track down. And so they were told, you know, stay in place and close your doors and all of that. There's no, never going to be any of that in the peaceful kingdom that's to come. That and all of the glorious things that you will see, hear, feel, taste, and so on, that's weight. That's a weight of glory. And it's all anchored in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, into those facts. From that basic facts or fact, all of these other facts spring. Therefore, conduct yourselves in light of these facts. Conduct yourselves as God wants you to live your life. Battle against the flesh. Battle against sin. Battle against the devil. Battle against the world in the strength of the Holy Spirit, in the truth of his word. Because God will judge. Look at verse 17. He will judge impartially all of those who are his. Now, this is not a judgment to condemnation, a judgment that ends up in hell. There is a judgment that does that, but that's not one that you are open to if you're a child of God. This is a judgment of your work. This is a judgment of your service. Okay? Of your motives. Of how well you have battled against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the thing that helps you to do that is godly fear, the fear of God. Because the fear of God always reminds you, hold on a minute, I'm straying again. I'm off in left field again. I'm thinking vain thoughts yet again. I'm indulging my covetousness, my lusts, whatever. I'm doing this again. And the fear of God brings you back to where you should be. It corrects you. So Peter, after he's talked about the fear of God, says that the thing that anchors this, the thing that makes this the most reasonable way of living life in this world, is that we know how how and with what we have been redeemed. We know the gospel. We know the gospel in a way that doesn't just mean that it's something that's presented in a story, but that we have put ourselves in that story. The death of Jesus Christ and our redemption, excuse me, belong together. And we, through faith, have joined ourselves to that reality. We know that we've been redeemed. And we know that we've been redeemed 
with incorruptible things. Now, what does he call corruptible things? Verse 18 says, corruptible things are things like silver and gold. Really? Silver and gold? I thought they were pretty incorruptible. You know, the finest silver, the finest gold? Yeah, they might need to be buffed up a bit now and again, but they're pure and they last in the rock for, who knows, thousands of years and so on. That's pretty incorruptible stuff. I mean, we've got gold inlays on masks of uh, Egyptian pharaohs from three and a half thousand years ago. That's pretty incorruptible, isn't it? I mean, that's impressive. Not to Peter, it isn't. No, 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 you got the wrong end of the stick. That's corruptible stuff. That's stuff of no value. That's not the stuff that you've been redeemed with. That's the kind of thinking that the world employs. You know, if the world was in charge of its own salvation, as it thinks it is anyway, then that's what they'd throw at it. Gold and silver and precious stones and things like that. Maybe tremendous works of courage and fortitude. The best efforts of the best people. Yeah, because that, that's the way that we value things in this world. But those things are not valuable enough. Those things are not permanent enough. We want something that's valued in heaven, where everything is so much more valuable than anything down here. So something that's really valuable in heaven is something that would be beyond any kind of comparison down here. Well, what is that? It is the blood of the Son of God himself. Came into the world, became a human being, died, shed that blood in this sinful world that was made by him and for him. That blood was spilled on the ground in this world. But that blood is what redeemed us. And that is most precious. There's nothing more precious than that. Nothing more valuable has existed in heaven or earth than the blood of God in Jesus Christ. And yes, it is God's blood. Acts chapter 20 calls it the blood of God. The God-man. That's what you were redeemed with. That's what you're saved by. And that's a fact. When you trusted in Jesus Christ, you didn't see that blood. When you trusted in Jesus, nothing incredible happened as far as, you know, the, the, there wasn't a window in heaven open and the chariots of God didn't charge out and uh, the angels didn't surround you and hand you a golden book. 
and tell you, congratulations, you're now a child of God. None of that happened. But what did happen, what actually happened, is that the blood of Jesus Christ was applied to your sins. Permanently. It's not corruptible. Which means your sins are forever hidden and covered by it. You see? Which means death, which preys on sin, has nothing to grab hold of when it comes to you and and I. And like I say, the alternative therefore is life. The life of God. The the new life that's in Jesus who rose from the dead. Do you know that? Do you treat it as a fact? that you've been redeemed by the incorruptible blood of Christ. You see, you've got to place the right value on your redemption. This is what raises Christianity far, far, far above any of the world's religions. Oh, they may be impressive in their own way. They may have their... Uh, buildings and they may have their stories and they may have uh, their incense and their sacrifices and they may have uh, their own books their own way of doing things their own forms of meditation which can be very impressive what are they in comparison with the blood that covers your sins forever What you need is redemption. You don't need meditation. You don't need forgetfulness or being absorbed into the nothing. You need to be cleansed. You need to be bought back from the world and the devil. You need to be brought onto God's side. You need to be cleared of his judgment. That's what you need, and that's what you've got. You've not just got that, as we'll see. But that's the first thing that you need, and that's been taken care of by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Notice, though, that Peter here, he kind of adds uh, something here, a kind of a thorn in the side, as it were, because he's comparing things in verse 18. Corruptible things like silver and gold, but he continues, from your aimless conduct. Aimless conduct? Yes. Aimless conduct, if you are not conducting yourselves and your lives in the fear of God, verse 17, then your conduct is aimless. It's pointless. It's trivial. Think about that. That's how God sees it. The religious person, ever so religious, maybe going to church all the time, 
maybe practicing their prayers and wearing their prayer shawls and bowing in the direction of uh, their holy shrines. Practicing all kinds of manner of impressive self-control And yet God calls it, what? Aimless conduct. People busying uh, their lives with getting on, getting things. They drive the latest, most impressive cars. They may even have uh, private aircraft that they shuttle around in. They live in the most exclusive areas of town and maybe have holiday homes in the most uh, beautiful locations. They eat at the best places. What is that? Aimless conduct. That's what it is. It's aimless conduct. I mean, that, that really is what it is because none of that gets you to heaven. All of it's here. It's maybe packed into this life of its 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. What is that to eternity? It's aimless, pointless. It's a vapor. So you weren't redeemed from your aimless conduct with silver and gold, which also is corruptible and aimless. You were, you were saved from that lifestyle, from that thinking, by the most precious thing in creation. But he adds to it, you received this aimless way of living by tradition from your elders. And this could be a, a connection that means that many of the uh, people that uh, Peter is writing to were Jews. Okay? The tradition of your elders. That's perfectly possible. But that tradition was, remember, a Christ-rejecting tradition. And so what was the worth of it? I mean, you can put all kinds of value, if you're the one doing the valuation, on Christ-rejecting things good works and, you know, monuments and charities and all kinds of things. But when God looks at it and he sees that it's Christless, he sees meaninglessness. Your faith is not in anything that can be constructed by the mind of man or by the hands of man. It is in the incorruptible blood of Jesus Christ and the plan of God that sent him into the world to die for your sins. That's what your faith should be rooted in, that fact, because it's the biggest fact in the world. You say, well, if it's the biggest fact in the world, why do not more people believe it? Because they're sinners and they hate God. That's why. Because facts don't necessarily change people's minds. People believe what they want to believe. 
truth always has a hard time in this world. Error always runs rampant. I hope that your faith is in the incorruptible blood of Christ. If it is, you and your sins, your transgressions against God, is covered. Verses 20 and 21 talk about Christ coming into the world and how that that is part of the plan of God that we believe. Now look look what Peter says. He says in verse 20, He indeed was foreordained when? Before the foundation of the world. This is not an ad hoc plan of God. God starts off with creation in Genesis chapter 1. Going very well. Genesis chapter 2. Oh, everything's so beautiful. Look at the garden. Look at everything. Look at Adam and Eve. Look at the animals. Everything's so fantastic. Chapter 3, in comes the serpent. Bam, everything's gone. And then God, looking at the devastation, looking into the future and the death and the travail that's been introduced into his world, goes back to the drawing board and says, okay, what am I going to do now? No. Before the world was created, before the fall, before the serpent was allowed into the garden, before Eve was seduced, before Adam willfully partook of the fruit. God had a plan. You say, well, why didn't his plan involve none of that falling stuff? I don't know. I really don't know. And I think that uh, many of the reasons that people bring up for that God wanted to show his wrath, God wanted to show his glory this way, are silly reasons. Okay? God didn't want to show his wrath any more than you want to show your wrath. Why would you want to show something like that? But it was a plan. It was a plan. And that plan has been, look at verse 20, manifested. It has made its appearance in history. It's come, it's happened, it can't be erased. You can burn all of the Bibles and all of the books about the Bible. It doesn't change the historical fact. It's happened. But Peter says it's happened in these last times or these last days. What does he mean? That's 2,000 years ago. How can that be the last times? That's kind of an odd way of putting things. Paul says similar things, by the way, as well. The book of Hebrews opens with this kind of language. What does it mean, these last days? Well, it doesn't mean the end times. The end times are the end times which we we may be going into right now, we may not, 
I don't know, I'm not a prophet. But we may be entering into those end times. We may be close to the tribulation, the arrival of the Antichrist. Who knows? But I think we are, I think we're close. But that's not what is meant by these last times here in 1 Peter. Well, what does he mean? What he means pivots on what has happened. The central event in the history of the fallen world is the coming into the world of Jesus from heaven to change the world, to give the world hope. And when he came and when he died and when he rose, history, even though it has certainly not taken a good uh, and radical change, history was altered. The destiny of this world was altered. And the last times were ushered in. Because the last times are all connected to the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Do you see that? And I've told you that before. When we celebrate communion, we're celebrating the first and the second coming together. The first has happened. The second will assuredly happen. And we have faith, yes, that Jesus has come. And we have faith that he has died. And we have faith in the fact that he's been raised and glorified. And those understandings, the faith that brings that clarity and that understanding to our minds is what gives us hope. Not I hope so kind of hope. Not a wouldn't it be nice kind of a hope. A daydream kind of thing. No, an absolutely assured hope that this is around the corner. This is going to happen. Yes, hope is involved in what? something that hasn't happened yet. That's why we call it hope, okay? But Christian hope is based on something that, yes, hasn't happened yet, but definitely will happen. It's anchored in a fact. And it doesn't matter what the devil does to try and prevent it. He's going to be powerless to prevent it. It doesn't matter what all of the various politicians and powerful magnates of the world try to do, and of course they're trying. When God is ready to act, when he's ready to send Jesus back, Jesus is coming back, and that's the end of the story. And he will wipe away all of the potentates and all of the powers, be they visible or invisible, like he's wiping away a stain from a countertop.
Jesus was foreordained to die and he was foreordained to come back. Well, he's done the first, we're waiting for him to do the second. And by the way, just in case you think that it's less likely that he'll come the second time than he came the first time, when he came the first time, he came lowly and powerless. And as a servant, when he comes again, there's none of that. When he comes again, he comes as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the potentate of potentates. You haven't seen power like that. Neither have all of the movers and shakers of the world. They think they're powerful. They're not powerful. They're little insects. God will get his little spray bottle out, spray the insects, and that'll be the end of them. We, through faith, or through him, verse 21, believe in God. You believe in God that planned all of this in the first place. You believe in God that God will secure that plan. He'll bring it to fruition. The only question is when he's going to do it. Not that he's going to do it. So we have faith in the incorruptible things that we've been redeemed with. And we have faith in the appearances of Jesus, his first coming, which has happened in history, the second, which is going to consummate history and wrap it up so that it can move on in a much, much better and more positive direction. And we'll be in that more positive kingdom. And this has been done and told us so that our faith and our hope are where? According to verse 21, where? In God, not, not in the world, not in politics, not in made-up stories, not in what the scholars say, in God. You glorify God when you trust him. You glorify God when you believe him. You don't add to his glory, but you glorify him. God wants you to trust him. He wants you to believe that you're in the plan. The plan's running according to his schedule. Don't look up, don't pull your head out of the parapet and look around and say, oh, this doesn't look very promising. It doesn't matter what it looks like right now. Tomorrow could be very different. Because God is going to secure the future, your future, my future, Johnny's future. He's got it all in control. The work's been done. We're just waiting now for the final act. For Jesus to come back. It's your faith and your hope in that kind of gospel. Because if that's the gospel that the Bible wants you to trust in. And it's the most reasonable thing in the world to trust it. And when you trust it, 
you are showing God that you believe what he's telling you. And that pleases God. Why would you believe something else? That your faith and your hope might be in God. Let's pray. Father, we hang on to with both hands the facts of the gospel. We have faith in those facts because, Lord, we know that you are the architect and the planner of what has happened and what is going to happen. We know that, Lord, we've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ because we believe that he died for our sins. And that that permanent and most precious of things, the blood of Christ, covers our sins forever, does away with death and its claims on us, and opens up the reality of new and glorious life with you. We thank you because all of this is because of your grace and because of your mercy and it's because of your goodness. We acknowledge these things. We trust in these things to take us to the golden shore. And thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for opening the word to us and for bringing us into the family of God. And help us Help us to trust you. Help us to live a life of faith in the fear of God for however long it is until Jesus returns. Amen. Let me close with uh, a reading from the book of Philippians. It's not a doxology, but I think it's a great way to end the service. Paul says, Indeed, I have all and abound. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.